Psalm 16, verse 1, a miktam of David. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to Yahweh, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names upon my lips. Yahweh is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless Yahweh who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I've set Yahweh always before me. Because he's at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is the word of God. Probably the most famous verse in this psalm is that final climactic verse, verse 11. It says, in your presence, there's fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore, describing this infinite and everlasting joy and pleasure that believers are going to experience in the presence of God. And this psalm calls us to live with that as a banner over our whole life, to live in light of eternity, to live in light of the infinite, and to let our perspective that we're going to experience infinite joy in the future shape our experience of the present. We're supposed to sing about infinite things, but infinity is an intimidating concept. Maybe you... Surely, at some point in your education, you at least began to grapple a bit with infinity or learned that it's some crazy thing in mathematics, learned the infinity symbol. If you actually grapple with infinity, some really strange things begin to happen. In fact, when you venture into that kind of territory, your normal everyday intuitions really don't serve you very well because when you enter the land of infinity, some weird things start to happen. So, for example, maybe let me tell you for a moment a little story math professors love to tell their students about the Infinity Hotel. Imagine you go on vacation and you book a room in the Infinity Hotel. I don't know if there is a line of hotels called the Infinity Hotel. If there is, disregard them. This is the real Infinity Hotel, worthy of the name. It's a hotel with an infinite number of rooms. So you arrive at this hotel and you step up to the manager at the front desk and you say, here I am, I'd like to get the key from my room, I have a reservation, here I am. And he says, I'm sorry, sir. Very solemnly, he informs you that the entire hotel is booked. We're full, there's no room for you at this inn. So you say, how could that be? I thought this was an infinite hotel with an infinite number of rooms. He says, yes, it is, and they're infinitely full. Every one of our rooms is booked, there's no room for you. And you scratch your head for a moment, and then you have an idea. So you say to the manager, what if you move the person in room one to room two and room two to room three and room three to room four and then so on and since you have an infinite number of rooms you could accommodate this maneuver and that would open up room one for me and so I can stay in your hotel. Aha! He says, oh, okay, that's, that'll work. In fact, if you were to do that maneuver infinitely number, an infinite number of times, you would open up an infinite number of rooms and so suddenly the hotel that was infinitely full has an imp- infinite number of vacancies. See, infinity is, 
It's an intimidating concept. You begin to grapple with it, some weird things happen. And what this psalm is, is it is a psalm about an infinite God. It calls believers to sing this song over their lives, to wrestle with and place their trust and their delight and their joy and their confidence in an infinite God and live in a relationship with Him. Psalm 16, you see at the very beginning in verse one, it says it's a miktam of David. So David wrote this psalm and it says it's a miktam, which is an ancient liturgical and musical term. What you'll notice is conspicuous by its absence in the title to the psalm is any note of the circumstances in which it was written. Some other psalms tell us it were written at a particular time in David's life. This doesn't tell us that. It doesn't tell us if it was written during a particular trial he experienced or as a result of deliverance from a particular trial. It doesn't say anything about the setting at all. And that's the point. This is intended to be a psalm that a believer sings as he goes through his life. This is intended to direct how we approach our everyday living in relationship with an infinite God. In fact, we could summarize the psalm in a sentence and say this psalm calls us to pledge ourselves to the infinite God, knowing that he will provide, protect, and preserve us into infinite joy. Pledge yourself to this infinite God, knowing he will provide, protect, and preserve you into infinite joy. That's what this psalm calls you to do. So I want to walk through this psalm with you this morning. We'll walk through those, those headings in that sentence. We'll begin at, look at verse 1, which instructs us to pledge ourselves to the infinite God. Notice verse 1, see what David says. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Preserve me, O God. It's an interesting turn of phrase. This Hebrew word shamar that's translated here preserve usually is translated keep. And typically when this kind of language is used in the scripture, it's used of God keeping his covenant. This kind of language is used throughout the scripture to indicate that the God of the Bible is a God who faithfully keeps his promises and his covenants with his people. For example, in Deuteronomy in chapter seven, verse nine, Moses tells the Israelites to know that Yahweh, your God, is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments even to a thousand generations. And what David is doing is he's seizing that language and flipping it around and saying, God, you say you keep your promises, you say you keep your covenants, keep me, preserve me, provide, protect, keep me, God. And in the second half of the verse, we see why David feels like he can call on God and demand of him, as it were, that God keep him. Second half of the verse says, because I take refuge in you. Your translation might say, I have taken refuge in you to indicate an ongoing reality. The, the particular verb tense that David uses to express this is, pictures the action as just a summary. In other words, he's saying, this is a summary, a banner over my life. I have pledged myself to you. I've taken refuge in you. I have given myself to you. Maybe to use a bit more familiar language in 21st century Christianity, we could say this is a psalm about what it means to give your life to God. Do you use that kind of language? I think it's good language to use. Sometimes I use that. I'm sharing the gospel or, or discussing biblical Christianity. I say the Bible calls you to give your life to God. Give your life to Christ. What does it mean to give your life to God? Well, these verses are going to tell us. You know, the second half of Psalm 16 really highlights and emphasizes the benefits that come to anyone who gives their life to God. But the first four verses spell out what it means to do that. What does it mean to give your life to God? 
Well, verse two and three, well, verse two, three and four are gonna tell us that. Look at verse two. David says this, I say to Yahweh, you are my Lord and I have no good apart from you. In fact, he says you are, let me, let me say it this way. You notice that I keep saying Yahweh whenever the word Lord is all capitalized. It's in order to make an important distinction. Most of our English Bibles read, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. But David's not stuttering in this verse. David's saying something quite profound. The first occurrence of the word Lord is all capitalized in your Bible because that's the Hebrew word Yahweh, the personal name for God, the, the name God revealed when he revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush. The name, in fact, that Jesus claimed for himself when he said to the Pharisees, before Abraham was, I am. This is the personal covenant-keeping God. And David's coming to this God and saying, I've given myself to you as my Lord. What does that mean? It's the Hebrew word Adonai, which means Lord. What is a Lord? I think the New Living Translation captures this really well when it translates this word with master. You are my master. That's what it means to give your life to God, is to give your life entirely into the hands of a master to own you, to provide for you, to protect you. It's really the language of a slave coming into the custody of a master. And David is saying, that's the nature of my relationship with the infinite God. I've given my life to him, so I belong to him. Notice verses three and four extend that and say because I belong to this God, verse three, I associate with God's people. Verse three, David says, as for the saints in the land, they're the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Notice he says saints in the land. In other words, because I have a private devotion with the God of heaven, the way that I express that in my life is that I align myself with his people on earth. Private devotion expresses itself in public allegiance. That's what's happening here. It's a whole person commitment to the real God. That's what giving your life to him means. Your entire person unreservedly is given over to God in private and in public comprehensively. And he goes on to make sure that he's defining what this relationship looks like in verse four when he says, I make a distinction between myself and people who don't belong to this God. Verse four says, the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names upon my lips. There's a distinction in David's life between those who belong to God and don't. Now, I just want to ask a question. When we talk about giving our lives to God, is this the kind of relationship that we have in mind? Because this is not the natural way that people talk about relationship with God. I mean, this is, this is true experientially. I've, my wife reminded me that it was a couple months ago that I realized it had been 10 years since I'd become a believer. I still think I'm a pretty young person. My kids disagree, but I think most people would say I'm a pretty young person. But in the time that I've been a believer, I've heard people use the language of giving their lives to God in all kinds of ways. And experientially, and now sociological data seems to bear this out, the typical way that we use this kind of language is to speak of basically a transactional relationship. A transactional relationship. You put something into the relationship, you get something out of it. So we approach God with a legitimate need I really need some healing, I really need forgiveness, I really need meaning and sense of purpose and significance, I need some hope for the future. I have a legitimate need and I know that God has the ability to grant my need and so I come to him ready to give him what he asks for. Give him a prayer, clean up my life, 
become a more devoted person, read my Bible more, sing more, etc., fill in the blank. Basically a transactional kind of a relationship, but at the end of the day, you still walk out the door and your life still belongs to you. This is essentially the kind of relationship that we have with vending machines. I know that's a bit crass, but just look into your own heart, and isn't it true this is naturally the way you are bent towards approaching God? So at the end of this service, we have vending machines in our hallways. Isn't that wonderful? And you could walk up to that vending machine, and you could say, I have a legitimate need, Mr. Vending Machine. I'm hungry. I forgot to eat breakfast. I see you have those Pop-Tarts there. What do you want for them? And you find a slot, and you insert your coins, or you insert your card, or your bills, or whatever. You insert into the slot, and out come the Pop-Tarts. Transaction complete. I got what I need. You got what you required. Game over. Isn't that basically the same way that we naturally want to respond to God? We have a legitimate need. And so we come to God asking, where's the slot, God? What is it that you want me to put into that slot? Do you want me to put in more prayers, more devotion? Do you want me to put in, uh, try to be a better husband or a better father? Do you want me to put in more church attendance? Do you want me to put in more, whatever, whatever it is. We're trying to find the slot and what exactly kind of deposit we can make in order to get out what we legitimately need. But those aren't the terms that God has arranged by which we can come to him. What God has asked for is not for us to insert something into a slot. Rather, what God has arranged is a way that we can give our entire self to him. This is not insert something, get something back. It's give your entire self to God and find that he gives his entire self back to you. It's not a contractual relationship that God asks you to enter, it's covenantal. He doesn't ask you to insert something into a slot, he asks you to give yourself to him, all of you. And this is not a debatable kind of a thing, this is not something you can bargain about, any more than you can bargain with the vending machines. I promise you that if at the end of the service you walk out the door and you find someone arguing with the vending machine, no I won't give you $1.50 for those Pop-Tarts, I have 25 cents, take it or leave a vending machine, You would call security. That would be crazy. Friends, please, if it's crazy to argue with a vending machine, how much more insane is it to bargain with the infinite living God? He's not a bargainer. He has opened a way by which you can come into this relationship with the infinite God. And what he asks isn't a deposit, he asks for you, all of you, to come empty-handed on his terms and to give yourself to him. This is what it means to pledge yourself to God. It doesn't, it's not a transaction, there's no slot, there's no walking away from this transaction. There's a covenant you can enter, there's a God you can know, there's a relationship that will own you, that will last forever, that's what you can have. That's what it means to pledge yourself to God, but the second half of this text tells us that the benefit that comes to every person who actually gives themselves to God is more than you could ever hope to imagine. I wanna walk through the second half of this text with you, and we're gonna see that everyone who pledges themselves to God finds that God gives himself entirely in return. We find ourselves in relationship with a God who provides, protects, and preserves us into infinite joy. 
So let's walk through what God gives to all of his people. Beginning in verse five, we see the first thing God does is he provides for his people, he provides for us. Look down at verse five. David says in verses five and six, Yahweh is my chosen portion in my cup, you hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. In those two verses, he's just using a plethora of pictures to speak of the same reality, that when he says God provides for his people, he provides nothing less than himself. God doesn't hold back, he doesn't restrain himself. He gives all of himself to every one of his people. Notice verse five, let me just pull out the word cup and we'll just focus on that for a moment. The word cup is actually a pretty frequent metaphor in the scriptures and it really speaks of a destiny. Whatever is in the destiny for you to drink is your, whatever is in the cup for you to drink is your destiny in life. Destiny is, what a buzzword, isn't it? I don't know if you have heard this very often, but I hear it all the time from religious teachers of every kind. They love to speak of destiny, but typically The mode of operation for many religious teachers is to speak of destiny and to give an inspiring, uplifting speech that there is a God somewhere who is going to grant you your destiny, but they leave the destiny vague, ambiguous, up to you to define as you see fit. But the Bible won't do that. The Bible doesn't offer you a choose-your-own-adventure novel and God is a genie in the sky who's ready to grant you your destiny as you see fit. Rather, God says there are basically two destinies and you can choose from them. You've been given a menu and there are two things, two panels, one choice on either side. The destiny that all of us rightly deserve, our default destiny throughout the scripture is punishment for our sins, judgment. We see this in texts like Psalm chapter 11, verse six. It says, let him rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. That's the default position we come into the world, deserving judgment because we've sinned against an infinite God but there's another cup that's offered to us. For everyone who pledges themselves to God in humble, repentant faith receives a different cup, a cup of blessing. And this is everywhere in Scripture as well. Psalm 23, this famous shepherd psalm, beloved by all of us. And verse five says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. My cup's overflowing with blessings. Because I have pledged myself to God, my destiny is to drink of the blessing of God. But what is that, des- that blessing precisely? Psalm 16 verse five says, the blessing is nothing less than Yahweh himself. It's God. God is giving himself to you to know him, to love him and be satisfied in him. He continues on in verse six. Notice verse six in the psalm. David gives another picture for this reality. He says, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. And the language he's using here, speaking of lines falling, he's talking about boundary markers and a property. So he's intending to call to mind the narrative in Joshua. Joshua tells of how the Israelites came into the land of Canaan and they inherited the promised land. And in the middle of that book, we learn about how the promised land, the land of Israel, is divided up. And so each of the tribes got an inheritance, a part of the land to inherit. And as they received their inheritance, they would then go through the land and they would survey and assess it. And they would see the rolling hills and the valleys, the fields, and say, wow. I have a beautiful inheritance. Life is going to be good for me here. David picks up that kind of imagery and says, that's what I'm doing with my inheritance, but my inheritance isn't just a a piece of property to possess. My inheritance is God himself. 
And as I survey and as I assess and as I begin to have the eyes of my heart opened in an expanding way to behold the height and the depth and the breadth of the love and the glory and the power and the mercy of this God who's given himself to me, I'm overwhelmed. I have a beautiful inheritance. Let me just ask you before we go any further. Believer, do you think of your relationship with God through this lens? You know, it's not the natural lens through which we think about our relationship with God. When I was uh, an undergrad, I worked for a summer as a camp director, a Christian camp director. Every week we would have kids come and they would stay in the camp for a week. We put on a, uh, a Christian camp for them. Uh, we had one week that was a family camp, and every other week the kids would come and they would stay by themselves. So one of these camps, it's a middle school camp, I was talking with a group of a few students and I asked them if they liked being by themselves or being with their families at the family camp better. Because a couple of the kids in this particular group did both. And one of these girls was refreshingly honest with me. She looked and said, oh, I like being by myself way better. I said, oh, okay, why? And she said, well, when I come to camp by myself, my dad gives me his money, but then I don't have to be with him. Some honesty, huh? Don't you see that's naturally the way that we approach God? God, I need healing. I need money. I need power. I need meaning. I need forgiveness. I mean, we could take so many good things that are part of relationship with God, but our natural tendency is we want to detach them. Because if God comes, and we have to obey Him. And we have to be with Him. What David doesn't look at his relationship with the Lord through that lens at all. David looks through his relationship with the Lord through the lens of God Himself is my inheritance. The greatest good that I can possibly have isn't just access to God's stuff, it's God Himself. If God... For God to give me things he created is not for him to give me his best. His best isn't what he created. His best is himself. That's what he's given you in your relationship with him through his son. Nothing less than himself. And he calls you to open your eyes and begin surveying your inheritance and see how much you have in him. Believer, as you walk through life and you begin to encounter over and over and over the reality that you have sinful desires welling up in your heart, bubbling up in your heart naturally, just as natural as your desire to drink water, that tell you you need this in order to be happy. And you know that's a lie. Having X isn't going to make you happy. And you know also that sometimes that X, you just so naturally feel like I got to have X in order to be happy. I need that. And you know Sometimes what that thing is you naturally desire is contrary to what God says is his will for you in scripture. How are you gonna fight that? One of the ways that you're going to, you should respond to that is by doing what David does in verse six, is by surveying your inheritance. Because what you have in Christ is so much better than what your heart naturally wants to take you to. You need to get out and you need to get into the valleys of Scripture and you need to survey the hills and you need to see the heights and the depths. You need to see the flowing beauties of the glory of this God who has said, come to me, all who weary and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. You need to know this God and have your view expanded 
so that you can rest in Him and say, I'm satisfied in my beautiful inheritance. Because when you come and you give your life to this God, this infinite God, He doesn't hold back. He gives Himself to you. That's the first thing that this psalm says God does for His people is He provides Himself. But David doesn't stop there. He continues in verse 7 and says, not only does God provide himself as my inheritance, but he also gives me protection. This God who I pledge myself to provides and he protects. We see that in verse 7. So look down at your Bibles at verse 7 and we read David saying, I bless Yahweh who gave me counsel in the night also. My heart instructs me. I set Yahweh always before me. Because he's at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. That's a beautiful verse. But if you're reading it with your eyes open, I wonder if maybe you feel like there's a problem. Or at least something that you could say is open to misunderstanding. I'm thinking specifically of the second half of verse 7 that says, In the night also my heart instructs me. What does that mean? Maybe this is in part because I work with young people and because I have two little girls that love Disney movies, but when I read that, one of the first things that comes to my mind is, is the Bible basically just joining in the chorus of every Disney song that's ever been produced? Follow your heart, follow your heart. And I'm not just talking about the animated films, I'm talking about the great classics of cinematography such as The Sandlot. Wherein none less than Babe Ruth comes into the protagonist Benny's room and tells him, Follow your heart, kid. I'll never steer you wrong. Is the Bible just joining in that chorus? Is that what's happening? Well, I think we should probably start with some basic foundations. A, a basic premise in Scripture is that the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Jeremiah seven nineteen. Some of the most natural desires that arise from the fount of your heart are poisoned by your sinful nature. And your heart naturally wants to tell you you need this to make you happy and it's lying to you. It's deceitful. We need to recognize that. And instead we need to look to Scripture and to trust that Scripture is better because God's ways are better. In fact, this is foundational in the life of Israel. Numbers chapter 15, a famous text in the life of Israel commanded the Israelites to make for themselves tzitzit, which are those tassels that, that the Jews would wear, even modern Orthodox Jews would wear tassels in their garments. That's a commandment that comes from Numbers chapter 15, verses 37 to 39, where God commands them to make these tassels, and in verse 38, he tells them why. He says, this shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of Yahweh to do them and not follow your heart. Because some of the most basic and inherent drives that come from your heart are deadly. So maybe there's a better way to understand Psalm 16 and verse 7. The night also my heart instructs me. I think a better way to understand it would be to recognize David as using a basic poetic technique called metonymy wherein you substitute a part for the whole and the particular way that he's uh, using this image in this text is that he's speaking of what he does at night. It's what I do at night that instructs me. And as you read through the rest of the Psalms, it doesn't take you very long to find David very active at night. What is he doing? We find a pattern in the Psalms that David at night is meditating on the word of God and praying to God. 
You find in texts like Psalm 63 and verse six, he says, I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. This is a, this is a pattern in the life of David. In fact, even in the Hebrew, the word for night is plural to indicate an ongoing habitual discipline in his life. This is so foundational. It's even in the very first Psalm, which opens this altar by saying, blessed is a man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of Yahweh. And on his law, he meditates day and night. It's foundational to David's life that in the night, he's meditating on scripture, praying to God, and he says, as I discipline myself to do this, even when I don't feel like it, when I discipline myself to meditate on God's word, it's starting to get inside of me and shape me and instruct me. That's the best way to understand the word for heart here. Notice if we compared all of our English translations, we would find a a different noun for heart in all of our translations. None of them say what the the original Hebrew says. The original Hebrew is a word for kidney, but I'm pretty sure your text doesn't say in the night also my kidneys instruct me. That sounds so weird. Why, why does David use that word? Is there some particular intellectual capacity that his kidneys have? What David's doing is he's just saying, as I discipline myself to meditate on God's word in a habitual, ongoing way, that word gets into me and it begins to be internalized. And as God's word is internalized in my life, it begins to change me, begins to guide me, begins to shape me, changes the way I think, think about God and myself and the world and my circumstances. It changes my perspective. It changes the way I approach everyday life. It changes even my desires and my goals and my ambitions and the things I want and the things I find enjoyable and displeasing. It begins to shape and fashion and mold me and transform me. That's what's happening. That's the way to understand the second half of verse seven. But then having said that, let's ask one more question about verse seven. That is, how do these two clauses relate? Let me read the verse again. I bless Yahweh who gives me counsel. So God personally is giving me counsel and in the night my heart instructs me. I'm doing that discipline. How do these relate? God personally is instructing me and at night I'm disciplining myself by meditating on the word. Don't you see the way that these relate? is that the second line is the means that God accomplishes the first. In other words, another way to say this is that in the second half of this verse, David is instructing every believer to be engaged in an ongoing disciplined habit of meditating on, wrestling with, chewing on the word of God and internalizing it. And he says, as that's happening, that's not just a dry intellectual exercise, rather, that is a personal and warm and intimate element of your relationship with God because that's the way that none less than God himself comes into your very life himself and begins to change you from the inside. As you're meditating on the word of God, as you're internalizing the word of God, you're not just learning dry, abstract truth. Rather, you're communing with the very God who gave you those words. And through his own word, God's entering your life, changing you and guiding you. That's what verse seven is saying. And verse eight tells us a result that comes from this kind of disciplined way of living our lives. David says in verse eight, I've set Yahweh always before me. As this this process is occurring in my life, Yahweh becomes forefront in my thoughts. God is first in my thoughts. God's shaping and God's there and God's present. And the result is that I feel like I will not be shaken. I have confidence, I have joy. 
And this isn't just one particular stage of life. Remember we said at the beginning that this psalm is intended to be understood as a pattern of life through, through all of its various stages. What David is saying is that as I engage in this discipline, I increasingly become a man who's characterized by not being shaken. I have confidence and joy that can't, that can't be moved. I know that my God will protect me. The God who I have pledged my whole self to has given his entire self to me and is protecting, providing, changing, shaping me through all of life stages. But there's one last thing that David wants to tell us. When we pledge ourselves to the infinite God, he not only provides himself and protects us through all of life, but finally, he won't let us go either. But he'll preserve us into infinite joy. You see this in verse nine. Let me walk through verses nine through 11 with you. Verse nine says this, therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices, my flesh also dwells secure. There's this threefold repetition to highlight and, and heighten the emphasis here. He's just ecstatic. He's overwhelmed as he contemplates what is his in his relationship with this infinite God. Particularly in this verse, he's really focusing prospectively, looking forward to what's coming to him. And what is it that's coming to him? In verse 10, it says, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. He's thinking about death. And as he thinks about his death, as he contemplates with sobriety his own demise, he's filled with overwhelming floods of assurance, joy, and confidence. Because he knows he won't stay there. That won't be the last chapter of his story. Rather, his story will end in verse 11. Look at verse 11. He says, you make known to me the path of life, and in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's his hope. That's the anchor. That's the rock on which all of this is flowing from. As he looks forward and contemplates where his life is going, that's what he sees. Fullness of joy forever in the presence of the God he's given himself to. I just want to talk about this for a moment. The language that he, that he uses is really striking. He speaks of fullness of joy, which is, by the way, what everyone wants. Not just a little bit, not just to go through life mediocrely happy, not to have a, pers- a, a hope that in the future I'll just live forever and it'll be kind of boring. How many kids go through our church with the perspective that Heaven is going to be a place where I stand on a pew and I sing hymns I don't understand forever. I think that's a pretty natural view that some, that some kids grow up in our churches having. We have this wonderful responsibility to shake them out of it and show them something infinitely better. There will be singing. Some of the truths that we're singing, you don't understand yet, but you will. What David's looking forward to is something indescribable. So he uses the best language that he knows to try to describe it. He uses really a word picture here. The word for fullness is a common word in Hebrew, sva, which is used almost always in the context of eating. Like in, the, in a feast in Israel, they would eat so much they couldn't eat anymore. Like a parallel would be modern day American Thanksgiving when some people eat so much you couldn't eat another bite. You're entirely full. You're satiated. You're sva. 
And David picks that up and he says, that's what God does to the human heart. He satiates it with joy to the brim. And he's gonna do it forever. And you know what the Hebrew word for forever means? It means forever. Fullness of joy forever in the presence of the God you've given your whole self to. That's what's promised. That's the hope. That's the perspective. What an incredible thing that you have been given this as the song that you get to sing over your life. No matter what stage of life you're going through, you get to look forward to this as your unshakable, unbreakable reality. This is where I'm going. Fullness of joy forever in the presence of my God. And your perspective of the future ought to shape your experience of the present. I know that's what's coming and it ought to shape the way you experience reality now. That's what David's saying. Now, all of that, incredible. What I just did just now is an exposition of Psalm 16 in kind of the normal way that we walk through the Psalms. The typical way that we do our devotions in the Psalms is basically like this. Kind of a one-to-one correlation. David loves God, I love God. David runs from sin, I run from sin. David repents, I repent. David delights in God, I delight in God. That's a good way to do our devotions and to, do, to explain the Psalms, but it's not the end. So for just a moment at the end, I'd like to perhaps all too inadequately show you another way for you to think about the Psalms. And that is, there's a way that this Psalm isn't just supposed to terminate here, but it's supposed to point you forward to Christ. And the way that you understand how this psalm points you to Christ is you understand where this psalm fits in the story of God's salvation in the world. To understand where this fits in the story, you just ask two questions. What came before this and what's going to come after it in the story of Scripture? Well, what came before is 2 Samuel chapter 7 where God came to David and he made a an oath to him. He made a promise, a covenant to David that one of David's descendants, one of his sons, would sit on a throne and rule God's kingdom forever. I won't go into detail about that because Jesse has preached a number of sermons on that. And if you're not familiar with that text, then you should go find those sermons on 2 Samuel 7 and you should listen to them and bask in the provision that God has made through all of eternity. But for our purposes, you need to know that David has in his mind, he knows that God is going to give one of his sons a throne that will last forever. And you kind of see that he's starting to prospectively look forward, not just about his own life, but about someone else in verse 10 when he says, you won't abandon my soul to Sheol or let your holy one see corruption. He shifts to the third person and he speaks of this holy one, this Hasid, who will will not undergo corruption. And we see that this term holy one becomes a technical term that's used for this descendant that's gonna come from David's line. You see this in Psalm 89 and other texts. So go in your Bibles to Psalm 89. Actually turn in your Bibles to Psalm 89 like sword drills. Turn in Psalm 89. You need to see this for yourself. Psalm 89 is a psalm that's written long after David is dead by Ezra, by Ethan the Ezraite. And in it, he speaks of this Holy one who's going to come from David's line and what God's going to do through him. So we pick up Psalm 89, beginning in verse 19. We see this psalmist uses the same term David did. He says, of old, you spoke in a vision to your holy one. It's the same Hebrew word, the chassid. You spoke to your holy one and said, I've granted 
help to one who is mighty, of exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David, my servant, with my holy oil I've anointed him. Anointed him, that's the word Mashiach, that's the word for Mashiach, Messiah. I've made him like a Messiah. So there's this line through David that I've made like the Messiah. And what am I gonna do through David? Verse 21, let me read a few verses. So that my hand shall be established with him, my arm shall also strengthen him, the enemy shall not outwit him, the wicked shall not humble him, I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. My faithfulness and my steadfast love will be with him, and in my name shall his horn be exalted. I will set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers, and he shall cry to me, you are my father, my God and the rock of my salvation, and I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth, my steadfast love love I will ever keep for him forever and my covenant will stand firm with him. All of that God's going to do with David, right? But when this psalm is written, David's dead. So how is this going to happen? How is God going to establish this everlasting kingdom? Verse 29, I will establish his offspring forever and his throne as the days of heaven. God's going to give one of David's sons this throne and this son is gonna come and fulfill all the promises that God made through David. David knows this and he's looking forward to this, this son who's going to come and secure his hope. This son's gonna make a way for me to enter into this everlasting joy that I want so badly. As you keep reading through your Bible, the details keep getting filled out. So go forward to Acts chapter two. Acts, turn in your Bibles, Acts chapter two. And in the meantime, I'll fill you in on the details that we missed. You open your Bible to this book called Matthew, the first pages of the New Testament. And the very first line as you get to the New Testament is this announcement that here comes the Jesus, the son of David, emphatically throwing down the gauntlet and saying he's going to fulfill all the hopes of God's people through the ages. Then you read in these four gospels about this Jesus who came and lived a sinless life. When people confronted him, they said no one spoke like this, no one did these deeds, no one's like him. And he's crucified voluntarily as a substitute for sinful people and then he resurrects from the dead and ascends to heaven and sends his disciples around the world with the message to tell everyone that the living God has sent his son who has become a substitute for you. Turn your life around and believe in him. Give your life to this God and you'll be forgiven of your sins and be given everlasting life. You get to Acts chapter two and it's the first chapter of that story, the story that we participate in today. Acts chapter two, Peter is going to preach the very first sermon to start the church and get this mission going and what he does is he picks up Psalm chapter 16, quotes it and says, David was talking about this Jesus. In verses 25 through 28, he quotes from Psalm chapter 16 and then in verse 29 he explains this. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Remember in Psalm 16, David says, you won't abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Peter's saying, but David did see corruption. His, his grave is just up the hill there. He is rotting. David wasn't just talking about himself. He was looking forward and putting his hopes in someone else. And in verse 30, Peter explains that being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on that throne, he, that is David, foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. 
that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. That's where David cast his anchor. That was David's hope, the resurrection of the Christ. Maybe we could go forward just one more verse. Hebrews in chapter 12 says that every believer is to run the race with endurance looking to Jesus, looking to Jesus. The founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is now seated at the right hand of God. What, what did Jesus say was worth enduring the infinite wrath of God to, reserve, to remove the judgment that we rightly deserve? You could say, well, it was, the, it was the, the fullness of joy in the presence of God, right? That's what motivated him to endure the cross and to die on the behalf of his people. But didn't he already have that? Philippians chapter two, though he was in the form of God. John chapter 17, Jesus says he'd share glory and love, infinite joy, infinite love for all of eternity past with the Father. He already had that. What is it that motivated him to endure the cross? It wasn't just his own personal satiation in the infinite glory of his Father. It was that he wanted to share that joy with you. He wanted you to be able to hear, well done my good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. He wanted to give you the joy he's had forever, even if it meant enduring the cross for you. This is the paradigm that Psalm 16 opens up for us. Jesus blasted open the door of Hades to bring us out into the presence of his very Father where there's fullness of joy and pleasure forevermore. He calls you, give your life to this God. Don't insert something in a slot. Give yourself to him. And when you do, he'll hold nothing back. He'll give you his very self. He'll protect you through this life and preserve you into infinite joy, the very joy that he's been enjoying for all of eternity he wants to give to you. You Infinity is an intimidating concept and eternity is a scary reality. Each one of us stands on the precipice of eternity. But if you give your life to the infinite God, you'll find that the everlasting arms are there waiting for you. Pledge yourself to God and find that he provides, protects, and will preserve you into his own infinite joy. Let's pray to him. Father, we're so thankful that you have revealed yourself through your word so that we might know you as you are. God, we ask that you would continue to open the eyes of our hearts, expand our view of use, help us to survey our inheritance that we have in Jesus Christ so that we would respond with hearts filled with love because of the love that you've already given to us. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. You have been listening to Emmanuel. You can find more resources like this at ibcva.com. Here is a parting word from Pastor Jesse. If you have any questions about what you heard today, or if you want to learn more about what it means to follow Christ, please visit our church website, ibcva.com. If you're not a member of a local church and you live in the Washington, D.C. area, we'd love to have you worship with us here at Emmanuel. We're located in Northern Virginia, and for more information about when and where we worship, check out our church website. 
I hope to personally meet you this Sunday after our service. But no matter where you live, it's our hope that everyone who uses this resource is involved in their own local church. Now may God bless you this week as you seek Jesus constantly, serve the Lord faithfully, and share the gospel boldly.